0: Hey, it's Dan here. You're listening to the OK Computer takeover of the On The Tape feed. Every Wednesday, I co-host a podcast on all things technology, both public and private markets, with a murderer's row of tech investors, former operators, and thought leaders. We will be squarely focused on the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3, whatever that means. And we've already had a couple of great guests like Adam Bain, the former Twitter COO and investor at O1 Advisors, and Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit and investor at 776. So please follow OK Computer in the podcast stores and follow us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking.
1: Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from
0: one easy to use app.
1: Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? This is OK Computer.
0: I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with my co-host Packy McCormick. Later, stick around. Katie Stanton, our other co-host, is going to sit down with Kara Swisher and myself. We're going to have a broad-reaching conversation on all things tech, the Joe Rogan Spotify thing, what's going on over there at Facebook, and obviously who owns Web3. I know who owns Web3.
2: Packy, how are you, buddy? I own Web3. I'm doing well. Happy Wednesday, Dan.
0: You're in Miami. I'm in L.A. We're all fired up. We got a lot of things going on here. I wanted to touch base with you a little bit because the stock market, in particular, tech stocks, have gone wild right now. The NASDAQ seems a bit broken to me. I wanted to get your take. I know that you watch the stock market, tech stocks, in particular, fairly closely, and I know that you're very obviously engaged with the private market, specifically you're investing in tech. But one of the things that really stuck out to me over the last couple of weeks is we've gotten Q4 earnings from some of the big tech behemoths and some of the guidance is just the dispersion in results and really the dispersion in the way the stocks have been acting. And I don't know if you caught this, but last week, Amazon and Facebook had two of the largest one-day moves ever in market cap terms, both nearly two hundred billion billion, one going one way, one going the other, leaving me to say, what do you want from me? When you see that sort of price action, what are you saying as somebody who's not staring at a fact-set machine all day long and trading public markets, what does it mean to you
2: about the business that you've chosen? Maybe it's because I've started meditating more. I'm looking at all this short-term price action as just noise almost like do i think that meta is done and that we've seen the peak in meta maybe maybe apple killed it i don't think so snap moved 70 percent intraday that's not rational and so i'm kind of sitting back and thinking which ones of these businesses am i long-term bullish on The fangs have never been the ones that have traded at the most ridiculous multiples. And so not necessarily worried from that perspective that the multiples are going to compress and we're never going to get back to those ridiculous multiples they were trading at because they weren't trading at ridiculous multiples previously. So to me, I'm sitting back and almost laughing. I tweeted when Snap popped, like, oh, great, text back, yawn. It just feels like there's a lot of churning going on with not much actual long-term impact
0: to me, it's really not as much about valuation. It's about sentiment. And then it's about, you have to ask yourself some pretty existential questions. Is the pivot to become meta? Is that the thing that turns this company into a $2 trillion market cap company? I'm just curious, you mentioned Apple. Apple turned the screws on Facebook a little bit. It was also the sort of thing that caused the snap decline from an all-time high just a couple months ago. Do you think we're likely to see it revert as it relates to Facebook in the coming quarters?
2: I would imagine so. I think Betting against Mark Zuckerberg has never proven to be a good business decision or investment decision. So my opinion on Facebook is still pretty bullish. I mean, I've seen a bunch of tweets over the past few days that are like, oh, the metaverse thing. And like, luckily, Facebook just decided to rebrand the metaverse because they want to own the platform. They've been planning this since the Oculus acquisition and even more. They know that they don't want to depend on Apple's platform we'll see. I think Apple's probably going to come out pretty soon with the best AR VR headset that we have on the market and might own the next platform. But this is not something that Facebook did not see coming. And obviously I've been putting plans in place for a long time to own the platform. So if I can buy Facebook and accumulate pretty cheaply here, I think I'm probably a buyer. I haven't made any moves yet because it is so choppy, but I would imagine that I'm going to use this period to start accumulating a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I have to assume that Facebook from 384 in September of 2021 down to 218, as we're discussing right now, is probably pretty close to a level that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense from a whole host of reasons. Strategic, that sort of thing. And betting against Mark Zuckerberg is probably not been a great trade over the last decade. One thing I would say to you is that in July of 2018, the last time the company had a real major hiccup as it relates to earnings and margins, the stock went down for months. At the time, it had a one-day gap was the largest one-day gap lower for any stock, I think it was close to 100 billion dollars, went down from July until the last week of December and it was a 45% peak to drop decline. So the idea is if you're looking to pick at this name right here with well, the sentiment's still really poor, you better be prepared to do it a bit lower. Sometimes it just takes time for these things to correct. One thing you said was really interesting about Apple and the likelihood that they create a VR headset that competes with Oculus. It seems like this is very contrived that Tim Cook has had these privacy issues on his mind. He's been battling with Zuckerberg for years on these sorts of things. Could that be the final straw if they were to release some piece of hardware that is so much better than Oculus? And listen, by all accounts, it seems like people are very happy with Oculus. I saw your friend, Chris Dixon at A16Z Crypto, and he wasn't really opining, I don't think from an investment standpoint, more. It's a great device, but do I want a device like that in the hands of a centralized owner like Facebook? And I guess the same thing would apply to
2: Apple. This has been the drum that I've been beating a little bit. I even wrote about Facebook's metaverse ambitions and that I think it's actually better if Facebook wins over Apple for the whole ecosystem. Because Apple has shown that it is willing to do battle with developers to maintain its 30% fee. Apple is a more closed ecosystem. Apple does what Apple wants to do. And that's great. And I'm talking to you from my Apple computer right now. I have my iPhone in my pocket. I have my iPad sitting right here. So I'm not complaining about it. But I do think in terms of an open metaverse, it's a hell of a lot better for that kind of movement. If somebody like Facebook is the one funding a lot of the hardware development, I think Zuck even compared themselves to Xerox Park, where they're the central entity that has a lot of money that's just pouring it into R&D that the rest of the ecosystem will benefit from. And I think that was designed to appeal to a very particular type of person. And it worked on me. Obviously, saying and doing are two different things. But I do think that Facebook has been more open than Apple has been. And so obviously, you don't want meta controlled. But meta as the hardware builder of the metaverse for now and the big R&D provider feels like it's more default open than an Apple metaverse would be.
0: It's interesting, these centralized platforms that we're talking about here, Spotify has obviously been in the news in this issue with Joe Rogan, and this stock is down 30% on the year. It just can't catch a bid here. And I thought it was really interesting when Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, when he left in late November, he's been making a lot of noise about who owns Web3. That's why I was kind of joking. I think that you own Web3 from a thought leadership standpoint. How's that, big guy? But this one is interesting. As this kind of dust up happened with Spot, Jack tweeted out a link to a company where you can actually transfer your Spotify playlist to other platforms. And I thought that was really interesting. Has there been any success, though, in any decentralized apps? Remember DApps? That was a thing before NFTs were a thing. That was a thing before people like me heard of DeFi, DApps, this decentralized web. Where are they?
2: And are we ever going to be using them? Yeah, there's, I think on both the music side, the social media side, there's a bunch of really interesting attempts happening right now. I wrote about a company called Brain Trust last week that is a talent marketplace in Web3. Their founder had a really interesting point, which is social media platform, you're not paying anything to use Twitter. You're not paying anything to use Facebook. It makes it more close to attack from a decentralized service than something like an Uber or a talent marketplace where you're paying pretty big sums of money to these platforms in the form of a take rate. I do think that we'll have some kind of user-owned, decentralized social media services of some sort, I think a lot of the attempts there to use the Chris Dixon word seem a little bit skeuomorphic now, which is to say Twitter plus a token or Twitter plus user ownership. And I think it needs to be a little bit more novel than just taking what we have now and decentralizing it. And I think the Spotify will be kind of the same thing we talked about on the show, music NFTs before, and I think that's a really interesting primitive. I think the next thing will not necessarily be like, okay, great. Now you want all these music NFTs. Here's a thing that looks exactly like Spotify on top of it. I think people will build new platforms that take into account the fact that you have these music NFTs and create totally different experiences as opposed to replacing Spotify. Spotify is awesome. I know there's been issues. I think one of the actually most interesting things here is... This past week in Web3, there was this whole issue around your ENS domain, your .eth that you see all over Twitter. One of the core team members, Brantley, one of his 2016, I think, tweets surfaced, and he says in his bio, he's Catholic. He had some very homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, views. And one of the things that happened was that immediately... Instead of saying this person needs to be fired or not, and he ultimately ended up getting fired, there was this really interesting conversation around the fact that people could just choose to delegate their votes. So when you got your ENS tokens, you had to choose who would vote them for you. A lot of people gave them to this guy, Brantley. A lot of people, as soon as this happened, were able to just take their votes away from Brantley. And so even though it ended up in a more extreme action and him leaving... I think that that's an interesting model for something like a Spotify going forward in this Joe Rogan situation, where on a very granular level, users can say, I support this, I don't support this, but it's not the end of the world that all of this is happening, where I feel like right now there's this battle between this is either the worst thing that's ever happened and Joe Rogan is the Antichrist, or he's being canceled and this is a sign that woke culture is the end of the world. There's not room for a real dialogue or granular conversation there. The dialogue is that the stock has
0: sold off, let's say 20% in the last month since this became a real thing. When you think about ownership tokens, well, those are shares. Shareholders have been selling it. Maybe there's other reasons in which they're doing it. And when you think about delegates or governance tokens, that's kind of what a board is, right? Like a board of directors, for all intents and purposes, they have fiduciary responsibilities. Interesting how this one is playing out. In many ways, I think actually Joe Rogan, whether you agree or disagree with some of the content that is being questioned, I think the way in which he has dealt with it is probably far better than that of which the company Spotify and Daniel Act the way that they have dealt with it, when you think of stakeholders, it's not just shareholders, but it's also employees. Users are obviously big stakeholders, but they're the ones paying you. And really, I think Daniel Eck is trying to speak to his employees. They run the risk of having mass defections there, the risk of defections on the content front. But I have to think with Joe Rogan, I'm not a fan of Joe Rogan's The stuff that's come out is not particularly great. I am not the cancel police or anything like that. But this is a company that paid him $100 million to be exclusive on their network. And sooner or later, the stakeholders are going to actually vote whether it be with their dollars whether it be shares or whether it be employees leaving or whether it be the content creators leaving. And that's what's going on. Daniel Ack has not done a good job of this. Once ago, I suggested that Spotify had a Joe Rogan problem because he was probably the most prominent voice associated with that brand. And now I really think that Spotify has a Daniel Ack problem because he just hasn't dealt with this controversy particularly well. I know he doesn't want to be a censor, but he is a media company right now. If you are paying for exclusivity for content and therefore you have to
2: kind of stick to your guns. And I'm just curious where you kind of fall out on that. One of the earliest pieces that I wrote was about Spotify. This was like back in early 2020, one of the earliest not boring pieces that I wrote and wrote about Spotify a couple times then. And I was super bullish on the move to go out and acquire content and spend a bunch of money on that because either in actuality or in terms of an argument to the market, It looked like, hey, we're finally owning our own content and taking back control of our margins as opposed to just locking ourselves into low margins based on the deals that we have with the record companies. We're going to go into podcasts. We're going to go into owning our own content and keeping 100% of the margins once we're able to renegotiate. it. So I was out publicly as liking that at the time. I think what I didn't appreciate was that as soon as they started signing deals, to your point, they became more of a media company and less of a pure platform. And when you have people who are both employees and content creators on the platform, you're vouching for that person in a way that if you're just a platform that has no opinion, you're not. And so it just adds a whole level of complexity. I think it was maybe a bet worth taking. Spotify stock had kind of been sluggish for a while there, but certainly now they're dealing with the downside of that, which is, do you stand with your acquisitions or not?
0: Here's a hot take. They should punt Daniel Eck and Reed Hastings. Netflix should buy it. And they really should be broadening out Netflix's offerings as it relates to streaming video. And they want to go into gaming. And then you have music. And then you have podcasts. And I'm not sure... Daniel Eck is the guy who's going to reinvent the wheel as it relates to online streaming. All right. Well, we got to hit a post that you had on Not Boring yesterday. The name of the post was Ownership in the American Dream. And you talked about what your presidential platform would
2: be now that you're 35 years old. Are you planning on running for president, Packy? The team is hard at work polling and seeing what my chances are, but it can't get much worse is really part of my slogan here. No, the point of the piece was it came from a bunch of different things that I was feeling all at the same time. One, the fact that the Olympics were on and I didn't give a shit and I don't know anybody who gives a shit that the Olympics were on is unbelievable to me because that didn't used to be the case. And I think there's a million reasons for that. One is just there's a lot more things to do. Whereas when I was growing up, there were a few channels that you could watch and everyone was watching the Olympics. So not all a national sentiment, but still weird. Two, my friend Kevin Song, he finally announced and launched his company with Co. that's helping small business owners buy their real estate. So there is that pride there. Three was this idea that I'm raising, putting the finishing touches on fund two for not boring capital. And I can only raise from accredited investors. And there's all these restrictions around how many accredited investors. And I think that's absolutely wild in a country where state governments sponsor the lottery, which have negative expected value, that you wouldn't let people invest in a positive expected value vehicle like a venture fund. If they don't have a million dollars already, that is crazy to me. And then another friend of mine, Brett, is launching something called Fry's DAO. And he's a lawyer and really kind of gotten the weeds on a bunch of this with me. But it's something that I've seen with DAOs generally, this idea that you can give a wink-wink governance token to the Dow, but you can't actually give people ownership, you have the same exact downside if you buy a governance token as if you buy an ownership token, the thing can go to zero. You don't actually get ownership and you don't actually get upside and people have to operate in this gray area. And it just feels like something that a few decades ago, half a century ago, whenever maybe 70 years ago, post-World War II, at some point the U.S. would have embraced this and said, hey, there's all this innovation happening. Let's be at the forefront of this and let's get out of our own way and let's make America a great place to own and share in the upside. And it just all came together this week and just didn't feel like that.
0: It was a really well thought out piece. And I think your slogan, as you detailed, was called American Owned or Make America Owners or something that we're working on it. I love it that you're still work in progress here. So you're going to keep workshopping it. I'd love to be a part of it. But here was the TLDR. This is what I took out of it. And you had this quote, we need to make America the place where everyone is an owner. Everyone acts like an owner. We need to make it the place where hard work and risk taking are applauded and rewarded The point is this, we need to stop focusing on worrying about the protecting people's downsides and start spending more time working on getting more people more upside. And that's really, I think, part of what you've been focused on with Web3.
2: 100%. It's actually part of the inspiration for that idea. And part of the change in my framework on that was I was talking to one of the early Robinhood investors, and I'd written a post coming out against Robinhood. And I do think it's tough to make it so easy for people to trade something like options where... If you asked 90% of the people on Robinhood who trade options to name one of the Greeks, they'd look at you like they had no idea what you were talking about. And so, like, it's really easy to lose money trading options. So, I came out against that in the piece because I had, when I was younger, I lost a bunch of money trading options. So, said that it was crazy they made it that easy. And the person's point was the average account size is like 400 bucks. And that's like a pretty decent portion of these people's net worth. In some cases, it actually makes zero. Like, what are you going to do? Go make. an hour and save up and catch up, that's not going to happen. So there's a bunch of people who are on Robinhood saying, yes, I know this is probably going to go to zero, but I could turn that $400 into $10,000. And that is a life-changing amount of money for me. And so I don't think options trading is the best way to get there, but I do think that it's crazy that people have so many restrictions around the ability to own and the ability to generate upside that would help them close the gap. And so that's part of the reason. The fact that protocols want to give people ownership. And it's a pain in the ass for them to do, like, not buy, not sell shares, but want to give people ownership. And that's a difficult thing to do. It's just something that I think needs to be revisited. To quote
0: Sundance, he says to Butch early in the movie, you keep thinking that's what you're good at. You keep doing that, man. These pieces are great. I think you give a lot of caveats when you kind of lay out the arguments. You say people far smarter than me will rip this apart. But you know what? If you're not putting those views out there and you're not making us think about these things, they're just not going to be any change. So I really appreciate it. I always love reading that Boring. And I really enjoy listening to the podcast version. So how do you pick real quickly? Because you got me right out of the gate with this one. You had Team America, F, yeah. And you bleeped it out. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, come
2: on. I know. I don't know why I bleeped it out. I had a couple people in my DMs this week saying like, hey, you really can't just use whatever songs you want to use in your podcast, which is also completely fair. (laughs) I try to keep it under 30 seconds because in the back of my head somewhere, there's some rule that if I don't go over 30 seconds, I'm fine. I don't think that's true, but I don't know. So I think I just got freaked out. And so I decided to use the non-curse word version.
0: And you know, you had me this summer when you did your Solana summer and you did cruel, cruel summer, which was just absolutely amazing. So you got to check out Packy's podcast version of his not boring post. They're excellent. All right, man. We covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about how NASDAQ stocks have gone wild. We hit your post about American ownership. When we come back, Katie Stanton and I sit down with Kara Swisher.
1: Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros.
0: Kara Swisher is the host of Sway, a twice-weekly interview podcast about power by New York Times Opinion. Over her career, she's hosted hundreds of newsmaking interviews, including going head-to-head with people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Rupert Murdoch. She's also an editor-at-large at New York Media. Host of the Pivot Podcast and executive producer of the Code Conference. Kara Swisher, welcome to OK Computer. I'm here with Katie Stanton, my co host here. Hi. 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 Why is it called OK Computer? All right. Good question. I mean, listen, all the great tech podcast names have been taken from decode to pivot. Now a little (laughs) sway here. But what we were doing with this one, and you may appreciate this a little bit, we're thinking about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it differently than some of the things that exist out there. We really want to focus on this intersection between Web 2 and Web 3. And back in the late 90s, a band called Radiohead, which you are familiar with, had an album out called OK, the letter O, the letter K, Computer. We wanted to kind of riff on that. At the time, to me, that was like really about just this oncoming tech dystopia. You know, like if you go back and listen to that album, and I often said it's kind of like the soundtrack to Black Mirror before Black Mirror was ever conceived. So we're kind of riffing on that a little bit. What do you think? You like it?
3: OK, Computer, let's go.
0: All right, fair enough. You're like, enough already. I think you bored her. (laughs) All right, well, a couple weeks ago, we had on OK Computer with Katie and myself, a man that I think you've called like the nicest guy in tech. It was Adam Bain. And it was funny, as we were doing a little research for our interview of you, I found an article from Recode maybe five or six years ago where you referred to Katie Stanton as the extraordinarily affable Stanton, talking about her joining the Wonder Boy Adam Bain, which I think is pretty fascinating. Now, I would just say this before I kick it over here. You tolerate me. I met you first on the set of Fast Money maybe eight or nine years ago. So I do appreciate you coming on our podcast every so often. But I think you said yes this time because of Katie. (laughs)
3: Yes, that was it entirely because I haven't talked to her in a while I used to talk to her quite a bit, but not uh, since I moved
4: to dc I know we have to book you on a podcast to catch up.
3: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I come here for you,
4: too You're a lovely guy, too (laughs)
3: It's a low bar in tech, so you do stand out They're all full of narcissists and bad history takes
0: Katie she once called us the amazingly screamy fast money guys or something like that That
3: sounds about right. Oh, yeah. They scream. Oh, it's going to happen up, down. It's so like reductive and ridiculous, but it's enjoyable on some level, I suppose. But so is Wall Street. So there you have it. Anyway, they try really hard to be accurate. That's how I feel about them, which is more than you can say about much of tech.
0: Yeah, what we're trying to do is kind of the intersections of a lot of things. One of them is Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And now Silicon Valley means a lot of different things. And we have an amazing group of contributors. Katie is a co-host, Rick Heitzman, a VC. I mean, Katie is a former operator is really fascinating. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys first met, how you came to be writing about someone, an executive like Katie, where oftentimes you kind of have a sharp pencil for some Silicon Valley executives.
4: Well, where do we meet, Katie? I think we met at Google Because I vaguely remember being in the Google cafeteria and I was working for Marissa and then Megan, two very different style managers (laughs) and executives at Google. And I was a little podunk product manager. And I think one of my favorite memories of you is that you have always been such a champion, especially for women on the rise at every different stage. But I remember you just giving me some like, hard, tough love at the time (laughs) telling me how I needed to be a little bit like bolder in my career. And I never forgot that. And I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, I think you were really apologetic. Usually, if you said sorry, you were probably apologetic. I was like, Oh, God, one of these ladies. (laughs) Because I spent a lot of time with men in tech who never apologize for things they should be apologizing for. And then women are constantly like, not everyone, but a lot more than should. We're always like, Oh, I'm so sorry to take a minute of your time. And I I was like, stop it. I'm enjoying this lovely kombucha shake. You might as well ask me a question. (laughs) But no, I dealt with her a lot more when she got to Twitter, actually, when she was in charge of a very difficult area that continues to be difficult, by the way, for Twitter and other social media sites, which is how to deal with the media and the new media and lies and truths and stuff like that and facts and non-facts. And so I, I talked to her a lot about those issues. And she was a champion of journalism, which was nice to see in that era.
0: You've really been at the forefront of that kind of conversation, Kara. I would say going back to your RICO days in, in the lead up to the 2016 election, and there's a lot going on right now. Let's just kind of hit some of the stuff that's kind of like here and now. It's funny, I've been saying this on our podcast kind of for months. I think well, the first conversation we had about it was in October. And I was starting to say, through the lens of, let's say, a public markets investor, I was saying that. Spotify has a Joe Rogan problem, and one of the main reasons is like...
3: No, actually, Joe Rogan has a Spotify problem, but okay.
0: (laughs) But I think it's really interesting. I mean, that's fascinating. Let's dig into it. But right now, I think Spotify has a Daniel Ek problem. And so my point back in October, very simply, was that Spotify is punching above their weight. They're playing in the podcasting and obviously in the streaming music vertical against behemoths, Apple, Amazon, you know the drill, all right? And so at the time though, Daniel Ack is not somebody that most US investors really are familiar with. And Joe Rogan has got legions of fans, very famous guy, and he's very quote worthy. And so that was my version. I just thought that there was something was really going to happen there, okay, one way or another. Now, and I've been following you and I listened to a Twitter Spaces you did last week that had almost 20 20- 25,000 people on it was absolutely amazing. And some of the conversations, the questions were amazing.
3: I think it was 2,500, but okay. Really?
0: Well, just so you know, go back and look at it because it says, listen to 24,500 now, which is pretty fascinating. So now, I mean, it seems like Joe Rogan is the one out there kind of really focused on his brand. And I actually, other than the stuff that came out over the weekend with the pretty racist stuff, the stuff that was just misinformation, I'm like, I was really kind of hoping he doesn't get canceled
3: but he's not being canceled. Stop it. Stop it. Stop using words like this. It's called editing. He made inaccurate statements about COVID. Every time someone makes a mistake, it's now being canceled. It is not canceled to say, hey, some of this stuff is inaccurate. And as publisher, Spotify, which they are, not unlike a book publisher publishing someone's book or New York Times op-ed section using freelancers, they're responsible for him. They pay him $100 million. By the way, it's not Joe Rogan's fault if he gets things wrong. He should have a fact checker. That would be nice. But it's Spotify's. First of all, they don't listen to him. That's obvious. Then they've been so surprised by this because it seems like they don't monitor him in any way. But nonetheless, that said, pulling out these words like silencing, and it's such a lazy way that tech people do to not take responsibility for their actions. This is nothing more than bad management on the behalf of Spotify to someone they pay a lot of money for in order to grow their company. He's not going to be canceled. He's going to always be able to talk. And guess who pulled the episodes? Joe Rogan and Spotify. Not me, not the Twitter audience who are screaming. They could call for it, but it doesn't happen. The power lies with Joe Rogan and Spotify. And to act like victims, And by the way, Joe Rogan's not acting like a victim. But Spotify is. It's ridiculous. It's endless bullshit from these people who can't take a minute to take responsibility for what they're doing. And if they don't want to, that's fine too, but we can call them assholes for doing so.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I actually think we're on the same page. My point is that this is not done, Kara. I mean, so the stuff that came out over the weekend, I mean, there's a really good chance that if the guys and gals at Spotify don't do a better job at this, that he might find himself off the platform. And then there will be calls that he was canceled.
3: No doubtful. He'll decide what he wants to do. He probably has a sweetheart contract where he can do whatever he wants. Honestly, he'd make more money being off the platform. They have to pay him out and then he'll go and do some quarter billion dollar deal with True Social, whoever the hell, Rumble, whoever. He'll be just fine and he'll have plenty of audience and he is what he is. Like, look, we understand what Joe Rogan is. What I don't understand is Spotify pretending that's not what he is and not having the set to back him. Have a set and back him. If this is what you think is good content, Stop trying to play it both ways by saying you're a platform on one hand and never saying you're a media company. They're a media company, act like one. So is Twitter, by the way. Katie, you and I have had this discussion.
4: I totally agree. I mean, I think I myself was wrong in the very beginning. We're like, no, we're a tech company in the media business. But I think the bigger we grew, the more we realized that we are actually a content business. And as a result, that forces us to have a lot higher standards and needs us to have a stronger engineering team to figure out how to deal with misinformation as it spreads and protecting our customers. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I'm on Twitter spaces. They don't pay
3: me. So the relationship between Joe Rogan and Spotify is very clear. With me and Twitter, not so much. They can throw me off the platform, and they do throw people off the platform that misbehave, right? They do. Not very well, but they do it. But in this case, it's a very bright line between a content provider and a company that pays him to make content, essentially. And so that we're arguing this and letting them get away with words like silencing and cancel is laughable. And then you have top VCs in Silicon Valley doing, it's the Salem witch trials, all of whom never went to school. By the way, that was about women, (laughs) really, and maybe like five men. And then like acting like they're under, oh God, I just, I want it. I'm so glad I don't live there anymore. I have to say, I love San Francisco, but I've had enough of this. Bad schooling and bad takes. No, not right now. Maybe I'll go back to San Francisco, but I'm not taking money from them. I'll tell you that.
4: So that's the difference, though, Carrie. You're ethical, right? I'm sure Twitter has offered you money to be on Twitter spaces no. as they have a number of journalists and you've chosen not to. They haven't offered you? No. Oh.
3: I don't think I would take money from Twitter. I think I would do an advertising deal that I would have control over or something like that. But I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is, Joe Rogan's being paid by Spotify, and therefore they're responsible for him. He may have a deal where they don't have any rights. That was stupid of them to do so. But now they're still holding the bag. And let me just say, if he leaves the platform, it's going to hurt Spotify and be great for Joe Rogan. He should. I would leave it if I were him.
0: Well, Karen, but here's the point. This is not done. And I don't use the term cancel. I mean, the word cancel is used by the afflicted, those people who feel like they've been unjustly treated. And here's the thing I would just say, based on the revelations of the weekend that, you know, he's made a lot of racist comments. If he was making that on his podcast, there are other far worse comments, I suspect, out there that could come out over the next couple of weeks or so. And then the company's going to have to make a decision. Now let's just say they agree to part ways. Now, their brand's going to take a hit for what they did or didn't do. It's one thing to run a huge platform with billions and billions of comments every day or every week or month and having the AI tools to kind of monitor that. This is a guy, they have paid $100 million to have his content exclusive on their network. It wouldn't be hard. He said that last week. We're going to have better content moderation and this and that, whatever. So to me, the misinformation and the racism, sexism, all that sort of stuff – They're kind of two different things here. So I guess my point is why I would say I don't want him to be canceled is kind of like I know you're into uh, Star Wars and stuff like that. You know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. He could become like a really dangerous guy if he's like literally pushed out to the far right. What's your take on that?
3: I don't think he is far right. He's a Bernie bro. I don't really care what happens to Joe Rogan. Listen to him if you want to. Don't listen. If he says stupid things, people should call it out. And it's not canceling it. Like, whatever happens, to it, Joe Rogan's hardly the point here. I literally, I was telling you before this, I just was interviewing one of the Sandy Hook parents, Lenny Posner, whose son Noah died in, if you can believe it, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. And literally, this is where it started. And this is what happens. And I'm not comparing this to what's happening, but everything that's happened since has been because of the ability of misinformation to thrive on these platforms and the lack of any kind of management of these companies in dealing with it. The Sandy Hook murders were the very first reminder of what can happen online. And these online platforms were allowed to flourish, create fake things, saying it was a hoax. All these, taking every little word, these poor parents who are suffering unspeakable tragedy, and then turn it into an online thing. They left Alex Jones up there for years. You remember that famous interview I did with Mark, where I'm like, you need to take him off the platform, and you're going to. No, no, no. Free speech, this and that. It's crap. It's crap, crap, crap. When I talk to a parent like that who suffered that, and then you get into these debates about which trials of the most wealthy VCs on the planet you have to start to say, what is wrong with these people that they don't know the responsibilities they have? And it is not anti-free speech to say, when someone who is this powerful has this much of an impact on people, if you're the platform hosting them, you either have to do something about it or not do something about it and take the crap that comes with it. But you can't have it both ways. That's my feeling. And especially what would happen at Sandy Hook was just the canary in the coal mine to what's happening out with the big lie or anti-vax information, or whatever happens to be the lie of the day, essentially. Sure, you should be free to tell lies, but you should also be free to suffer the consequences of those lies.
0: Yeah, just for the listener here, you're referring to the Salem Witch Trials. There was Mark Andreessen, he is the A in the A16Z, tweeted about something about cancel culture, about witch trials, that sort of thing. You're referring to that, and you responded in You were asking maybe some other people on the other side of a recent debate that goes on on Twitter between some of these VCs for a thought here. So you you just think that some of these guys who invested in all these platforms from the very beginning, and they are generally guys and became extraordinarily wealthy doing it right now, they have a bit of responsibility too?
3: They have a lot of
0: responsibility,
3: not a bit of a responsibility. They, They want all the money and all the fame, and they want none of the responsibility, It's classic. It's very classic. And then they want to hide behind concepts they don't even understand the First Amendment or free speech. They want to hide to cover up their sins. And it's not wrong to say, can you please fact check this and then have it twisted into a free speech fact check? Well, there's a lot of facts. I'm like, no, there really aren't actually. There's very few. And there's a lot of opinions. And that's very different. And everybody should have their opinion. Joe Rogan can shift from a pro to I don't know what. I'm not sure. I can't tell because it changes quite a bit. He can do that. That's perfect. But he definitely can't be citing or using people that are doing inaccurate information without getting called out. I mean, they don't even want to get called out. That's the incredible thing. No one's asking for him to be censored. It's just this is inaccurate. And he has an impact on millions and millions, especially young men. Like, Look, Howard Stern was talking about boobs and he got fined millions and millions and millions of dollars by the FCC. Okay. Like that's the way the laws were. In this case, there's no laws. I don't know if there should be. I have no idea. But we have done this before, whether it's Chris Cuomo getting kicked off of CNN. It's happened again and again and again in media. But somehow these special little flowers of Silicon Valley cannot be touched. Like, give me a fucking break. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just
4: really seriously.
3: Like, are they 12?
4: Yeah, there seems to be selective responsibility.
3: I have many children, and they're all more mature (laughs) than any one of these people.
4: Kara, one of the things I love and respect about you is your ability to flex and go beyond your current beat. So you've been part of Silicon Valley for so long, but now you've expanded obviously quite a bit as a New York Times opinion writer, host of Sway. You have your conferences and all these things. And I'm curious about the one beat that I haven't heard you talk too much about, which is climate. So this is something that I've been spending a lot of time on with Moxie for the past few years, just seeing this as the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity. We have to innovate our way out of this big, hot mess. I'm curious, like, how do you even think about that? How do you choose these new beats? How do you think about climate? And do you think this is the most urgent problem as well?
3: Actually, I've written several columns about climate tech. I even made a claim in a story two years ago where I said, I think the world's first trillionaire is going to be a climate change technologist. I only did that. I made that number up. I just was like trying to get people interested in the idea. I've interviewed Bill Gates. I've interviewed about his book about that. I've interviewed quite a few climate change people on Sway. So I think a lot, and in our upcoming PivotCon, which is in a couple of weeks, in uh, next week in uh, Miami, we're talking about it a lot because they're you know, under great challenge. We're talking to the mayor, the mayor, Kava, who runs Miami-Dade, about seawalls and difficulties of running a major American city in a coastal area, very vulnerable. And so we want to talk about those issues quite a bit. And I try to insert them because obviously it's the most existential crisis we face going forward. And while tech isn't going to be the answer to everything, there are certainly all kinds of interesting investments, stuff that Elon's do. I think the two prominent people in that are Elon and Bill Gates would be, I think, pretty much, and some others in terms of the big money spending. But I think it's critically important for tech to step up here and look at not just autonomous cars, but carbon capture. I even think space travel is an important issue, even though a lot of people make fun of some of it, and as well they should. The little joyride to the edge of the atmosphere is kind of silly compared to what we really need to do about living on other planets if there is a real problem here. But I think it's really important to write about it. So I do lots of things, and I try to bring in lots of voices and I think it's critically important because there's an old joke about, I guess, the internet, computer, whatever, we're all sitting together along with electricity. And computer said, you need me for this. And the internet said, you need me for this. And electricity said, fuck you, without me, nobody's nothing. <laughs> like, And that's how I feel about climate change. Like, It doesn't really matter if we argue about Joe Rogan or whether Mark's going to, Zuckerberg's going to dominate the metaverse. He is not. FYI, said narrator. Or anything else, because if we these climate change issues are going to shift the way we live on the planet, I would recommend a recent interview I did with Neil Stevenson, who created the idea of metaverse in his one of his books, Snow Crash. His latest book, and I'm totally blanking on the title, but it's all about climate change and a billionaire who shoots sulfur into the atmosphere to solve it and creates many more problems, which sounds pretty much on time kind of thing. So I think the Neal Stephenson one, we talk quite a bit about climate change and where it's going and what an interesting thinker he is on those issues.
4: Yeah, I'm reading John Doerr's book now, uh, Speed and Scale, and it is a good perspective and he's very thorough and clear-headed about things and obviously applying his OKR framework to all these things. And one of the observations I've had in climate and as a new, relatively new VC, is that climate tech is one of the few areas where It's so much more collaborative than some of the other categories because it's a must have. Like we need lots of smart people around the table and there's a lot of accountability. There's a lot of responsibility. There are a lot of ethics and mission driven, kind of the original parts of Silicon Valley that we all fell in love with, the optimism, the euphoria, we're going to democratize, blah, blah, blah for everybody improve, blah, blah, blah. But climate, I think is, or climate tech rather, is just much more real, much more important and really refreshing, I think, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, actually.
3: Yeah, they had tried, John had had a go-round with this before, by the way, as you recall. So did Vinod Kozla. There's several, and got real burned in green tech early. And that's the problem. A lot of this stuff is not until, like, we lose Miami or something. And we have all these events, obviously, from very serious climate events around the world. But until it's something so critical that it will move everybody into, like, a planetary movement, we're going to heat up by the degree, and then we're going to be screwed, I think.
0: Speaking of planetary movement, you referenced your famous, and I think there were a couple famous interviews you did over the years with Mark Zuckerberg, but you also, I was at Code in September in LA and you sat down with Elon Musk. And I thought that was really interesting because (laughs) you have a way with him that I think very few other journalists do. He likes talking to you, I think. Mark does not like talking to you. He sweats. Elon feels like he's with his people here. And I was just going to say, did you see this new uh, movie by Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza? I did not. You got to see it. It was amazing. And I got to tell you.
3: Yeah, I'd like to go out, but I have more children now, so I can't.
0: Well, we're going to get to that, too. I know Katie wants to get to that. But in the trailer, and there's a great scene in the movie where they use David Bowie's life on Mars. And I was just saying to myself, man. I cannot believe they did not save that for the Elon movie because that's coming to a theater near you and it's going to be epic and it's going to be someone like PTA who does it. But my quick question is for you, when you talk to Elon, I mean, how close do you really think he is or SpaceX in general is to a mission to Mars? I know that he famously has made a lot of claims about when they're going to do this or that or whatever as it relates to Tesla and everything. Do you think in our lifetime?
3: I don't know. I don't know. I'm not up on the, the technology enough. Here's the thing. He's kind of PT Barnum and he's promising. He does deliver eventually, by the way. Look at how well they're doing. Although we can get stay away from the stock price, but he is delivering on his promise that he made. And the cyber truck's going to be three years later, four years, but he's working on it, right? The solar stuff is coming. The SpaceX, look, everyone was like, that's bullshit. And look at, they're doing payloads. They're doing all kinds of things. They're using reusable rockets. So I tend to think A lot of his proclivity to be, I'm using a kind term, a jokester, some people think he's an asshole, like it depends on where you're sitting, to want to take little digs, make stupid remarks like Senator Karen about Elizabeth Warren or whatever, it's juvenile. At the same time, he totally delivers. And so I try to approach him in that sometimes I sort of access the jokester that's not the cruel jokester, you know, the pedo thing was stupid. He does a lot of stupid tweets, and then he does some that are funny. He likes to behave like that. He enjoys it for whatever reason. And so I let him be him. That's one. I call him on the stuff that I think is unfair. I think even though he gets angry, sometimes he says, I'm going to leave. I'm like, okay, leave. Like, what do you want me to do? I'm not your mama. His mama got mad at me once, by the way, and when I wrote a column. She wrote me all kinds of mean tweets at me. So I see where he gets it. I love her on Twitter. She's great. Yeah, she can be mean. <laughs> I just raised a normal question about COVID protocols, mom. But I get it. I'm good with her insulting me. I'm good. I'm fine. She's frightening a little bit. And then I sort of accessed the funny stuff because he's so competitive. And the Bezos stuff around the Rockets where I knew he would launch into 50 penis jokes immediately. And I kind of <laughs> wanted him to. I wanted the penis jokes. And so I went there with him. So I think we beefed over the years. We didn't talk for one year. I don't know why. of something stupid. He got offended by something I said. But I think he's really quite a visionary, and the stuff he's working on is very important, whether it's boring or Hyperloop or Tesla or SpaceX. I think it's really important. And I spend so much time with people doing the stupidest things, like thinking a dating service is the most important thing on the planet, to this. He's taking big shots. At the same time, some of his stuff is just like, oh, good God.
4: He was good on SNL. Carrie, you know I love my POTUS, but I'm kind of upset with my POTUS for not acknowledging all the great work that Elon has done. Yeah, I don't understand that. Do you
3: understand? Yeah, I have no idea. I should call them and find out. I find it ridiculous. Because he's problematic. Because then he'll like come out with Canadian truckers thing or Senator Karen or you just never know what you're going to get from him. But there's no question. He is the one person who has spurred the other companies to move into self-driving and autonomous cars and electric cars. He's a critically important. He will be a historical figure. He will be an important figure. They would never have done it without him doing it. And again, the valuation, I don't know. I'm not an investor. So I just feel like I don't understand why Biden's doing that. It's weird. It's weird. It's sort of like Trump with Bezos. Like, come on, let's acknowledge. Not a fan in many ways, but in some ways, like for Trump to have that weird attack on Bezos seems over the top.
4: All right. So, Carrie, you've talked about Mark Andreessen, you talked about Zuck. Who's your favorite Mark? Oh, <laughs> I like Mark Benioff. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> he can be a
3: blowhard sometimes, but I don't mind. I think he's really interesting. I don't mind him virtue signaling. I don't care. I think he does walk the walk in a lot of ways. I like Brian Chesky quite a bit, and I know there's controversy around Airbnb sometimes, but I think he's trying to do the right thing. There's a lot of CEOs like Satya Adela. We had a great interview at Code, actually. I find him to be really interesting. What an interesting thinker. I like most of them, not all of them.
4: Which female CEO are you paying the most attention to? Okay, (laughs) if there were many
3: female CEOs. I know, we don't have enough. I mean, I've talked to Aisha Evans at Zooks and some other places, that's now an Amazon company. So there's not that many at all. We've got Jen Hyman, Katrina Lake. Jen Hyman, I've interviewed her. We've interviewed Lisa Sue. she was great. We try very hard to bring in female CEOs, but I'll tell you, we do CEOs. And so it's typically a man It's typically a white man. And it's gotten worse, hasn't it? There seems to be fewer in tech. Lisa's very important.
4: I was gonna say the other thing, Kara, you schooled me on (laughs) is that you've been trying to get all these women on different podcasts. And my response to you has always been, oh, I'm really busy. I can't do it. And you're like, Katie, take your space. Take your fucking space. Drives me
3: crazy. Just right now with PivotCon, literally, every white man says yes. Every one of them. Like, there's never a no. People of color, women, I ask double the amount and get half the response of the white men. I want you to take your space. And I hate when you say I'm busy. And then don't complain that you're not asked. By the way, there is tons of misogyny and racism. But if you're asked and you're asked because we think you're a worthy person, say yes and take your space.
4: Yes. So PSA for every woman listening, every underrepresented minority listening, when you get asked to be on a board, when you get asked to speak on a panel, when you get asked to be on a podcast, say, yes, we need more of these voices represented in media and tech and all these other great things. I agree. Take your space. Hashtag take your space. Take your space.
3: I take my space. I take three spaces.
0: (laughs) So Kara, one area where I'm seeing a lot of women and a lot of people that you might call underrepresented in traditional tech, is in Web3. And you wrote a great piece in the New York Times in mid-December about Web3. And it sounds like you're trying to be very optimistic. One of the things that I find really interesting in the seat that you're in now is I know you from all things D and Recode and really driving a lot of the tech narrative and challenging some of those narratives and generally optimistic, I think, along the way. You were calling people out, not really the technology or some of the incentives. Some of the technology. (laughs) Some of the technology. But your piece was really good. I thought it was really well balanced. And I'm sure it's your ideas have evolved, even in the last couple of months, because things have been moving very quickly. I'm just curious, because you had this one quote in there, but he said, but before you start imagining some digital utopia, many, with some justification, think that Web3 movement is also rife with hype, windbags, and more than a little grift. So I'm just curious, give us your 411, where you are right now on Web3. And this year, we've seen this like growing battle, like Jack Dorsey started this thing that the VCs own the Web3. And I'm just curious your take on that.
3: He's right. I'm with Jack Dorsey on this. These incredibly powerful people saying, get the man. I'm like, hey, you're the man. You the man. Like, that's my favorite part is like the most powerful and rich people like go, I'm a populist. I'm like, really? You and your planes and your giant homes and your yachts? Give me a fucking break. It's Trumpism. It is. It's ridiculous. So I do think there's a real danger that something that's pushing decentralization centralizes in power among certain people who have the money and means to do so. I'm on Team Jack on this one, and I love him tweaking them all. And he's also a powerful and rich person. But he kind of is like, he's not saying he's not. He's just like, give me a fucking break. That's what he's saying when his thing. So I do worry it's a couple of things. I just interviewed Bob Iger, who I think is a terrific CEO. I listened to that. That was great. That was a great interview. He talked about the dangers that are coming. You know, if he, he doesn't run Disney anymore, but if you run a brand like Disney. You got to worry about Who's running this thing? Who's running the show? And if it's the same people who did the last one, we should all be a lot worried. And so I think it was somewhat comical with Facebook suddenly changing their name. And it was a land grab on their part. But they have to deliver. And I think one of my issues is that I'm a little worried about power centralizing again, as it did with the main Internet, the Internet we have now. I think this is going to acquire much more creativity and ingenuity and innovation and these people don't have any <laughs> like that's like or don't have enough to do it. And so I hope that there's a more dispersed kind of group of people involved without it turning into this sort of dystopian libertarian kind of thing that's over libertarian. You know what I mean like do whatever. I'm like no. Nobody does whatever they want on the streets of America. And so I think that's my worry, is that it becomes sort of this chaos, or it's run by the powerful people once again. You can't get innovation and really changes made if that's the case, I think.
4: I mean, Kara, you live in D.C., and you're at this intersection of both you know, tech and regulation. I'm curious what you're hearing on the ground from your friends in government, how they think about tokens and securitizations and regulations of this whole emerging economy. Well, they're trying to clean up the old one. I just
3: did a long interview with Lena Kahn, who's the chairman of the FTC. I'm sure I'll be talking to John Cantor soon enough, who's the new head of antitrust. And I talked to Amy Klobuchar quite a bit and some others, Mark Warner. I did a great interview with Ken Buck and David Cicilline. These are two opposing people who are on the same side of a lot of this regulation. And so they're trying to clean up from the old stuff, whether it's privacy or anti-hacking legislation or transparency legislation. There's all kinds of legislation. Or else you're a regulator like Lena Kahn, who was outmatched by a factor of a lot in terms of trying to get enforcement or figure out what these flood of mergers, which one to try to stop when it's just incoming constantly. So I think they're dealing with the past or how to deal with current issues around misinformation, everything, just everything, privacy, misinformation, hacking, et cetera, 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 cybersecurity, et cetera. And so I think they are aware. We did an interesting interview with Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC about what they're going to do about crypto. I did an interesting interview with Senator Warren about this. And I think everyone's sort of like, hmm, let's try to cut this one off at the pass so that we don't have the same problems we did last time. So I think because it's finance, there's not as much, a lot of it is finance right now. And contracts, NFTs are contracts, essentially, I think there'll be more legislation more quickly, because it's stuff that it, whether it's healthcare or money, it's a little less, I think they're going to want to have some regulatory oversight over the some of this stuff.
0: So, Kara, here's one a couple of days ago. I think it was probably around the time that Facebook was down 25% in one fell swoop after they reported their Q4 results. You know, Ben Thompson from Stratechery, he tweeted this. I thought that was really interesting. And you probably noticed this, that they mentioned TikTok a whole heck of a lot of times on their conference call. And Ben tweeted, it sounds absurd to tweet it, but the FTC really is suing an American company for eliminating competition while a Chinese company is eating their lunch. I thought that was really interesting way to phrase it. I'm just curious in your thoughts because it really does fit into this.
3: Meaning that they have competition.
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, you've been reporting on this. You've been critical of this. Anytime Facebook over the last 10 years has seen any competition, they put a billion dollar offer in and they do an aqua hire and they squelch competition. And that's the FTC's focus here. But really, they're probably what he's saying here is that we've opened another flank here for our US tech champions at a time where China is reined in their own, but they're doing a heck of a job, at least as far as ByteDance is concerned here.
3: Sure. I mean, TikTok is one company, right? And it's fine to have competitors. My issue was that anytime that they were too big, their excuse was not just TikTok, it was TikTok China, like that kind of thing. They want to make sure you understand that they are the fighters for freedom when they're not my fighters for freedom. Like, (laughs) thank you. I have others that I would prefer. I think they were doing it for their own self-preservation. That said, TikTok is a major competitor to Facebook. You know why? Because Facebook doesn't innovate. Like, you know what? People aren't on their big blue app because it's not as good as it was. It wasn't really ever that good. But it was useful. It was certainly a utility, which is what Mark called it when I met him many years ago. And just people aren't using it. This is typical of the cycle of technology. Some things go up, some things go down, and they inevitably all go down. And that's what's happening to Facebook is that it's they've reached their saturation point, essentially, and they haven't offered anything else. And so they'll move to other things like attacking competitors or trying to get legislation in their favor or buying things. That's where they are. That's where you are in their cycle. I doubt they're going to win by innovation. I don't see it. I don't find them to be more innovative than some of these amazing startups that you see. And so what I'd like is for the government to clear the way for these startups by clearing out some of the power, like who's investing in social media right now besides the Chinese, not US companies. I remember Ben Horowitz said, I'd never invest in search or social media or commerce right now that much because what's the point? And that kind of says it all. This was a couple of years ago. And they haven't. Snapchat was the last major social media company created,
0: right? But is it interesting to you, Kara, that Snap and Twitter, I mean, even combined right now, they're less than $100 billion. They're small. Yeah, tiny. And they'll never get to a billion users. And so it's kind of funny, even though that blue site on Facebook is a dead stick, I mean, they still have more than 3 billion. Yes.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, Inertia is an excellent way to keep people on the service. And the other challenge too, you see from a VC perspective, that something like 40% of every VC dollar is spent on Google or Facebook or Amazon. So it's like, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's hard to break out of this vicious cycle of these big behemoths that are just sucking in so much American or global consumption and capital.
3: That's hard. And I think, look, the reason TikTok is successful is not because they're Chinese. It's because they're great. People like it let's remove the Chinese part. The reason they're kicking Facebook's ass is because it's a great app. It's fun to use. It's addictive. It's not so unpleasant. And there's a lot of problems. There was a, I think a NyQuil chicken challenge. Oh my God. But they've been (laughs) taking that off. Like that's crazy. And they should be monitoring that stuff, but it's beating, not because it's China. And by the way, we, I was one of the first people to write about the dangers of China and got a lot of pushback from a lot of, by the way, Silicon Valley VCs. I was like, this country, I call it a surveillance economy. I said, they're dangerous. I said, the government is facilitating these companies to be stronger than they are. I remember getting the pushback I did. And now, of course, China. And when I did that interview with Mark, where he talked about Alex Jones and the Holocaust deniers, which got more attention, there was one thing he said was about this, like, it's either me or China. Like, I called it the G or me argument. And I was like, I don't want either of you. I don't like G, but not so fond of you. That's more fond of you than G, but okay. That's like having to choose between, in my case, like, I don't know, what don't I like? Zucchini or. How can you not like zucchini? I don't like zucchini. I'm sorry. Zucchini is delicious. I do like my brother when he makes it, I like it. But, you know, something I don't like and something I don't like. So I don't think the G or me argument is one I really want. I don't need a. Corporate protector. I need the government to protect us from incursions from China, whether it's cybersecurity or et cetera. I need the government to do that. And by the way, who's the company actually reigning Facebook in right now? Guess who? Apple. Look at the numbers. That was what was fascinating. Whatever number they said, ten billion. I think they just made that up. Honestly, it might be. Who knows? Like again, with the numbers with Facebook. Remember when they did that number where. It's only 0.00% of stuff on our platform is bad. I was like, you just made that up, that number, didn't you? You hoped I'd just type it. (laughs) And there's no way of me of knowing what the actual number is. But the fact that Apple is the one that's reigning in these companies is not good. I mean, yay for the privacy parts, but no. Like, I don't want Tim Cook to be the cop of the internet. I didn't elect him. He's not accountable. So whatever.
0: Well, $2.5 trillion later, that's what Apple is able to flex on. Carol, let's quickly talk about the markets here because, again, I said earlier, I met you coming on a market show and you always had tremendous insight into like these massive themes that become massive investment themes. And that was one of the reasons why we always enjoy talking to you. I've been in the business for 25 years and I had a front row seat at a hedge fund to watch the dot com bubble inflate. And everybody back then could say, this is a bubble, makes no sense, but no one could put their finger on it and figure out how to profit from it. Not too many people. And we saw the same thing in the lead up to the financial crisis. And we saw these tremendous bubbles burst and they usually take a long time to work themselves out. And usually at the top or near the top, you can go back and it's only in hindsight and you say those massive blow ups, that was the tell in the last week. We saw Facebook, again, had the largest one-day decline of any equity. It was close to $200 billion. We saw PayPal down 25% in one day. We saw Netflix down 25% on one day. But it went the other way, too. We saw Amazon had the largest one-day appreciation near $200 and then Snap in one day on Friday was up 60%. I mean, that's just, like, insane when you think about that. What is your take right here? Are you talking to, like, execs about this movement? Because on the investment side... People think that the plumbing's broken in the markets and it's obviously manifesting itself in mega cap tech. I'm just curious if you've any takes on that.
3: I'm not an investor. Don't get, you know, I'm the person who bought Bitcoin at $10 and then lost my, 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 <laughs> I did. I have 50 bit somewhere. I don't 10. I don't know what I have. I bought it for a story. Remember whence is Casares. You got to find it. I'm never going to find it. It's gone. I probably threw it out. And again, I'm the person who turned down a job at every major tech company over the years when they were small. So don't go with me. Money is not my motivation. I hardly pay any attention. I just put money in the market and I leave it there for the rest of my life until I need it. Hopefully it'll be there. But let me just say, I think people are differentiating between different companies. They're looking at the fundamentals just like they should rather than buy them as a group. And so I think if you look at Amazon, you'd have to go, hmm, pretty friggin' impressive, except for the regulatory overhang, which is not insignificant. I think he's got a world of trouble in that regard. I think he'll be the one most focused on because I think they get it. Facebook will wane. Amazon might not. There's nobody on the horizon. Google is where they should be looking because it doesn't look like there's any competitor there kind of thing. And so I think they're just differentiating and Snap is just winning by innovation. Talk about a company that gets shoplifted by Facebook every day of the week and twice on Sunday and still <laughs> manages to create amazing innovations. It's so true. It's I, I used to joke that Evan Spiegel was chief product officer at Facebook. But he's winning through innovation and creating a differentiated product and products people like. And when he makes a mistake, remember he did that one thing that everyone my teens went crazy and wanted me to call him when he did a redesign or something. I'm not calling him, but then I did. But he's winning by innovation and changes and changes of himself. By the way, there's someone, boy, has he progressed as an executive and a person and not perfect, but boy, has he progressed massively.
4: How awesome to be the children of Kara Swisher. And when you get pissed off about social media, you're like, mom, call Evan, mom, call Tim Cook, call Sundar.
3: They don't want to anymore. They're like, "Oh, mom, stop. They're essentially at this point. No, they're pretty good. They're pretty good.
4: They're amazing kids. And I have two favorite memories of our kids when they were younger. One was at your house and you were having a Christmas party and you had like a chocolate fountain and all the other nice kids were out there putting in a strawberry and a toothpick and eating them. And all of a sudden I look over and I see my kids and your kids basically putting their mouths under it and just getting covered in chocolate. I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then my second one was at my house. You know what? I didn't stop them. Everyone was like, you should stop. I'm like, why? Life
3: is so short. You should put your face in a chocolate fountain. You do you. Yeah. There's actually oil in there. That's what was gross. There's vegetable oil in there to make it all flowy. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Gross.
4: I mean, imagine you could never do that again in COVID times, right? Like, oh, that's like unsanitary. But anyway, that was a fun day. It was a fun day. And the second one was at my house at a Christmas party. And all five of our kids were jumping on a bed that was surrounded by glass windows. And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> It'll be a miracle if we don't end up in the er tonight, but we did not and that was amazing They're behaved
3: well in the right ways. That kind of stuff is fun I just
4: exactly yeah. like be a kid jump on beds put your heads in chocolate fountains I'm the good parent around homework or
3: at school right now My 16 year old is all agonized about work about college. I'm like oh take off a year like, Don't do that. It doesn't matter.
4: Yeah gap years are the best. My son did a gap year
3: I'm constantly saying that. He's like, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say, buckle down. I'm like, I don't think you should buckle down. I think you should unbuckle and enjoy yourself. But he doesn't like that advice right now. He wants to be agonized. Well, that's because he's 16. I was like, you're you're like a rich white guy in
4: America. How hard is it going to be for you? Like, honestly.
3: <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> he works
4: hard, by the way. he works. I hard. bet he does. But you went on and I love that. Like you went on and you having more kids, you have four little dragons now. And how is motherhood and parenthood in your 50s? Are you a cooler mom, an easier mom, a funner mom? 50s, yeah, late 50s. I think I'm the same mom.
3: I want them to enjoy themselves. I want them to express themselves. I want them to behave with respect to people. One is only three months old. So we're not working (laughs) on that issue yet. But I have my first girl, I have two older boys. And then the new baby is a little girl named Clara, and she is just a firecracker. I just think she's so confident and so interesting and sassy. And I wonder where she gets that from. (laughs) But one of the things, impatient, super impatient, I'm really going to be paying a lot of attention to her when they try to shut her down. I remember a moment when one of my sons, I'm not going to say which one, his favorite hat was a pink hat in San Francisco, and he wore it as spangled and the cast. It was fantastic. Everybody loved it. And then one day he came home. He's like, only girls wear these hats. And I was like, what happened? Where did this, do you know what I mean? Like, so I'm very interested in what happens around, you have girls, what happens to their confidence and stuff. And the reason I had more kids is why not? Why not embrace? I love kids. I love having kids. I tend not to say no to things. And I fell in love with someone else who wanted kids. And so I said, yeah, I will say yes. This is really great. It's not always easy. We're having, like, right now with a three-month-old, a two-year-old, a 16-year-old. And my other son, is, of course, takes care of himself. But it's a lot. It's a lot. But it's worth it, I think, in lots of ways. I don't know. I didn't even think about it, Katie, honestly. I didn't.
4: <laughs> I love it. Take your space and have more babies. I don't know. What do you think? He wants a lacrosse team. Dan
3: wants a lacrosse team. They're actually very good lacrosse players, the older ones. And I'm, I don't know about Clara yet.
0: That's what you and I connected on, your boys and their love of lacrosse. And my girls played lacrosse
4: also. Mine too. All three of ours. Yeah. That's so fun.
3: Basketball now. Alex is an amazing basketball player. He's on the varsity at his school. I'm going to one tonight, actually, and hopefully taking Clara maybe this week. We'll see.
0: Well, listen, we've really enjoyed talking to you, Karen. We appreciate you coming on OK Computer. And listen, you're one of the best interviewers out there. And it's really our pleasure to be able to ask you questions and hear your thoughts.
3: Thank you. I'm sorry I ran, but honestly, these people, like, are they going to keep going on every topic until society is just ground into dust and they're the richest people on the planet and they leave for Mars? <laughs> honestly, like, take some responsibility, you man boys. Ugh, I just, I can't believe they keep going. By the way, I'll keep going. So I'll outlast them.
4: I hope you do because you are a treasurer and we love <laughs> you and admire you and so honored to have you here today. Thank you. I'll see you soon.